0: Well, Christmas just brings like a whole different environment and a different spirit. It brings like this energy because it's December 1, you know, and like December 5th, we're all going to be like dragging already. Like, oh my goodness, I got to get the tree up. So it looks like a lot of you already have your Christmas tree up and and, uh, you've got that spirit going. Some of you have been playing Christmas music for the last month and a half and so you're just kind of ushering it all in. Um, but we talked about in our connection class, now in, in, in Making Home Work, that's our connection class, and we've been studying through the family, and we're kind of talking about real practical elements of mom and dad, of how we train our kids, and how we engage them with different thoughts against society and the world, and, and how do we keep a gospel-centered home, a gospel-centered marriage, and really raise up gospel-centered kids. Well, this morning, we veered away from the Making Home Work uh, series, and we talked about the chaos of Christmas. Back in 2015, we did a sermon series during December on the Christmas chaos, and one of the first messages that we looked at was Luke 2, verse 41 through 52, and it's the whole forgetting Jesus story. Remember Mary and Joseph, they went to the Passover feast in Jerusalem, they spent eight days, did everything a part of the ceremonial task, and then as they got with their big caravan ready to go, they just kind of configured Jesus would be with them, and they get a whole day's journey 20 miles, 20 miles down the road. And they realize Jesus is not with them, and they they forgot Jesus. So you can imagine what Mary and Joseph are thinking as they travel another day back to Jerusalem to try to find their 12-year-old son, the Son of God, Jesus. Mary's probably blaming Joseph. Joseph is blaming Mary. They're a little bit stressed at this moment. And what we learn from that lesson are a lot of really crucial things going into the month of December, As let's not be victims of forgetting Jesus. Let's not let the chaos control us. Let's let's not let stress overwhelm our spirit. So very practically, even right now, we need to set in motion the steps that we're going to take as families, as individuals, even as a church, that we would stay honed in and focused on what the full picture of Christmas really is all about. And so this month, our teaching series that we launched today is entitled, The Full Picture of Christmas. Now, Christmas brings a lot of images to our minds. There's the whole traditions, gathering of family, travels. Uh, There's another picture that has been crammed down our throat with society, and that's the picture of Santa Claus, that's the picture of gift exchange, Christmas parties. Hallmark movies, you know, all of those things that are not of God. That's just what it is. And all of those things have been crammed down our throat, and none of those things are bad in and of themselves until they take our full passion and our attention this time of year. For the Christian, the full picture of Christmas happened 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, and that was. The prophet Isaiah recorded in Isaiah chapter 9. That's where we're going to go this morning. And we're going to look about how God planned this. It was planned by God, this complete picture of what we know as Christmas. Now, you see on the screen these different pictures. And, of course, the beautiful baby in the middle and and, um, Mary in the corner, the wise men worshiping after the baby Jesus had gone home and, and grew a little. Um, The the prophecy written in the top left corner, you have Joseph hearing from the angel about Mary's pregnancy, and and then the cross gives us the picture of what it it kind of all is headed to. Like the gospel-centered life knows that Jesus came in human form to dwell among men, to live a sinless life so that ultimately he would be the sacrifice on the cross for us. And so that brings us in full circle with the whole full picture of Christmas. Well, this morning, we're going to go to Isaiah, and we're going to begin with how God planned it in Isaiah 9, 6. Now, there were so many songs this morning. It was almost every song we were singing kind of had thoughts to our text in Isaiah chapter 9. There's this, the thought of the joy and the thought of deliverance and the thought of victory, and the, the whole reigning of Christ. And so really all my main points were already sung about today. And so I think maybe some of you would be like, let's just sing them through again and have an invitation and we'll go home, right? Don't say it, okay? Um, so I know some of you are the, are the Muppets in the balcony ready to bark out some funny things. All right, but thank you, Scott Boyd. All right, so <laughs> Isaiah chapter 9, let's, let's look at verse number, verse number 2. Okay, so the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of the Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ in a little town called Bethlehem, Isaiah, led by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a prophet of God, writes out the prophecy of the Messiah's birth. So this morning, we're gonna dig into the full picture of Christmas and see that it was all planned by God. Let's pray and let's ask God for His wisdom this morning. Father, it's been a tremendous day already. I've enjoyed my time with the church family, with partnership before the service, having coffee, donuts, and Bible study together, and then to just laugh and then to cry, to pray together. We know that we're all facing different circumstances in life that can seem a bit overwhelming at times. But we have come this morning not out of routine, but we have come with a a purpose and reason. We come to, to lift our voices in unison of worship to you. We come to open the word of God to be instructed by you and to take steps of growth, to be challenged and to be convicted, to take the next step that makes us more like Jesus Christ. So this morning as we we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the month of December, but we also know that what is ahead of us for the next 25 days can get out of hand if we're not careful. But we start today with the whole full picture of Christmas, praying and trusting that this picture will help us to stay focused on what it really means this time of year. So I ask now that you will guide us in our time of message that it would come from you we show our full dependency on you today we thank you for what you're going to give us from your word in Jesus name amen so isaiah's prophecy lays out the full picture of what god had planned for the messiah to come to leave all of heaven's glory to come here on earth and this did not happen by accident or coincidence this is something that was planned purposely by god in verse number 2 we see that it was planned by God in order to bring light in the darkness. It was said in verse 2, the people that walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Now, as Isaiah writes this, there's some really dark days that are ahead for the northern kingdom In the northern kingdom of Israel, they're going to be taken captive by the oppressor, the Assyrians, and the Assyrians are going to invade and they are going to take the north and humble the people of Israel. So Isaiah does not look at that circumstance of oppression, but he writes looking beyond the oppression to see what the joy and the light and the deliverance and the rain is going to bring from God in man form through Jesus. Jesus. So eventually the Lord would save his people from the oppression and we would even see that he's going to do this just as he did in the days of Gideon when the 300 would go and annihilate the Midianites, Judges chapter 6 and chapter 8. So before Christ has changed us, we would see that same picture that our life was wandering in darkness. There's some in here who you vividly can remember the days that you were in deep darkness, separated from an almighty, all-loving, caring God. Do you remember what that life looked like, that you were trying to find hope in different things, in different places? You had relationships that you thought were solid that ended up failing you. You had finances that you thought were going to be secure but ended up being shattered. You had so many things in your life that you thought was going to be your hope and your stability until you quickly realized they're empty and they're vain, and your hope was found in Jesus Christ. You see, that's the song that we sang this morning was that, that living hope, not hope in something that we wonder if it's going to work out in the end, but a living hope that is strong and stable, a living hope that gives great confidence and great gain in our life. That's the hope that Isaiah is recording. Now, those dark days consumed us until we saw the Lord's face. And he says in this passage the word shadow of death. You see that in verse number 2. This references the darkest misery of captivity. Knowing that Israel will go into dark, dark days of misery and oppression. They will be in captivity. But they will finally pass the sin and wickedness in their flesh, their sinful nature. All is going to abound and keep them in sorrows and great sorrows and regret. But we're going to find that though they were hopeless... They were going to see a great light. That great light was going to give them new freedom, liberty. It was going to take away their regret. It was going to give them new life in Jesus. It was going to give them this sense that they could do it. So Christians all across this room, you look at your life and we know that regret is a pretty common thing that we struggle with. We know that guilt seems to consume us all too often. We know that we doubt ourselves, we doubt the process, we wonder if there's really any stability in God, we, we wonder if anything is going to be hopeful the next day. We seem to fill our journals with complaints instead of praises. We're looking to see what we can do to overcome all of these circumstances on our own. But what we're reminded of is that we have that incredible hope that is found in Jesus Christ because of that living light. The gracious act of God came and and gave us hope in the midst of our spiritual darkness. And today, we worship him because of the light that he sent. John 8, verse 12, here's what Jesus said. He said, I am the light of the world, and he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. As we were singing that joy to the world, I was kind of really taking a moment to realize that as Christians and as the church, the high responsibility that we have to express the joy that God has changed us and that we are a living creation, a creature that has been changed and continually changed to be more like Jesus. And so this joy is one that the sad reality is that there are many people who are still living in darkness. Tomorrow, Some of you are going to go into a workplace where your coworkers are nice, they smile and they're kind, but they're without Jesus and they're living in darkness. Some of you will have interaction with your neighbors and and they're kind and they're gracious and and, uh, you seem to like them and you get along and you borrow each other's yard tools and and you exchange eggs and and cups of milk and, and so you're really kind people, but without Jesus they're wandering in darkness. There's some people in our families who are are good people that we enjoy being around and and doing life together, but they're without Christ, they're living in darkness. And so the sad reality is that all around us, even in this time of year, there is this overwhelming oppression of darkness in people's lives. Oh, they're going to be so excited about the gifts that they'll receive, they're excited about the gifts they will give. They're excited to see Christmas lights and to bake Christmas cookies and to sing the Christmas songs and to take in all of the experience of this season. But without Christ, they're living in darkness. So as the church and as God's people, we take what Jesus said on the the mountain when he gave the Beatitudes. And in Matthew chapter 5, he came to verse 14 and said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but rather on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Why do we do the Christmas cookie exchange? Just so we can get together and exchange a bunch of cookies and, and have a bunch of food and fellowship and, and partner, partnership? No. No. The Christmas Cookie Exchange is called Christmas Cookie Exchange Outreach. And it is with the great purpose that we, as God's people, will be a light in the midst of darkness. Like we're so excited about putting the lights around the Christmas tree and around the door and, and hanging from our, our rooftop. And we're excited to get in the car and drive through different light presentations. And we love the Christmas lights but let's not forget about the responsibility and the mission that we have been called to to be that light in the midst of great darkness. And it doesn't matter your age, it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter your social status in life, it doesn't matter where you are, we are all as children of God called to be that light. And so grab a hold of the vision with Christmas cookie exchange, find a place to be a part of, but more importantly, instead of just coming to find cookies, You bring somebody to that exchange that can see the joy of the Lord on people's faces. They will hear about Christmas traditions and the host is going to tell the Christmas story from Luke 2 and bring it all to a point that says Christmas is all about the baby born to live a life headed to the cross. That's being a light in darkness. Isaiah is going to continue in verses 3 through 5, planned by God in order to bring deliverance and victory. In verse number 3, thou hast multiplied the nation and yet not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men they rejoice when they divide the spoil. In verse number 3, the ministry of the Messiah would bring joy and gladness to Israel. Like this was going to be something that the angels would shout to the shepherds on the hillside. This would be a message that was going to come out clearly from the manger that night that this was going to be a moment of deliverance and victory. The joy was going to come to the people who lacked true, true joy. And so Isaiah writes and he says that they will rejoice according to the joy and harvest. This is a time when hard work has paid off. This is a time when bounty comes and the reward comes because of their labor. In verse uh, number three, he continues that they rejoice as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. This is a celebration of victory and triumph. They would go into a city and whatever they could take, they would have unless God told them that they had to destroy everything. Saul was told that, didn't click with the memo and was judged because he took of the spoils. And so here, he's going to use these examples that would connect well to Israel as they're reading this prophecy. So Messiah has become the source of our true joy, and that cannot be found in anyone or anything else. In verse number four, this speaks of his act of deliverance. So we've got this joy in verse number three. We've got this deliverance in, in verse number four. This is the first explanation of hope that is being described here. And what Isaiah is doing is he's looking back to Egypt and the Exodus. He uses words like yoke and burdens and shoulders and oppressor. These would have all been words that referenced in the time of the Exodus. You can find all of those written in the Pentateuch in the law. These were going to be references to uh, their captivity and, and coming out of that and finding redemption through Christ or through God. And that redemption and deliverance came as a covenant that he made that he was not going to go back on. And for us today, we sit here and we doubt God. Because things aren't happening in our time frame or the way we would want them to go. And so it's very easy for us to just go default mode, and that's to doubt the source of the almighty God. And we want to trust in his sovereignty, but we say that his sovereignty isn't fair in my life. And so this is not the way I would have written my script. And so for God to allow this circumstance and this circumstance to happen in my life means that he doesn't love me or doesn't have the best interest for me. And I have no doubt that there are people scattered all across this room that one time or another, you had that train of thought or you had that struggle and doubt that does God really have my best in mind? Is this really fair? Is this really what God wants to do with me? And this is all a part of his plan for victory and deliverance in our life study through the Old Testament, follow the people of Israel, and you would see a time of blessing in their life and they're pumped and they're excited and they're moving forward until they turn their back on God. And then they turn their back on God and they go to their own ways and then God brings justice or brings judgment. And when that comes along, then they go into captivity and oppression and the bondage and they just don't know what to do. And God brings all of these prophets along, studying through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and all the way through to the end of the Old Testament, you'll find these prophets coming along to give assurance to the people in captivity that if you'll turn back to God, if you'll stay faithful to God, he's going to see you through. No different for us today. Circumstances cause us to be derailed. Trials cause us to be doubtful. We're insecure. We're scared. And we begin to turn to things that we find our common knowledge and things of our experience. And we call that our safe space. And we're going to be okay because I've got my God in my box. And until he's ready to deliver, until he's ready to give victory, then I'll just leave him there and I'll figure this out on my own. And then if I hear God tapping on the box, I'll open and see, are you ready? Okay, not. All right, I got it. Maybe one day. And though we don't maybe verbally describe it quite like that, because that's, ooh, I don't want to be a part of that, our lives and our hearts clearly describe that's how we function with our God. You see, the deliverance and the victory that is going to come to the people that are in captivity is one of great hope and assurance. It's going to bring an overwhelming joy. And today, if we're looking for something to worship God about, we can, we can really start here. This is a great starting point that He has delivered us from sin and He has given us victory through His Son, Jesus Christ. How incredible is that? Do you, do you think you deserve anything better than what you have today? Do you even think that you deserve heaven? Like all of us sit here in God's grace knowing that we deserved hell. But God graciously granted us salvation. As God rescued us, as he drew us to himself, and as he called us by name, we were at that place of faith receiving his grace. And salvation changed us. And for some of us who've been saved since a little kid, five, six, seven, eight years old, like that's our world. This is all we know. So it's like, well, how could I have done anything differently? Like this is just the life that I was going to live. And this is just who I am and who I'll always be. But the reality is, is we find ourselves so complacent about the incredible miracle of grace that saved us Until you're able to sit down knee to knee and coffee to coffee with someone whose life was drastically changed from being an addict or someone who was controlled overwhelmingly by the flesh an adult who had rejected the grace of God, one who wanted to do life on their own until Jesus found them and saved them. That's when your eyes begin to open and you see how incredible this deliverance and victory from sin truly is. The last few weeks, we've been studying Galatians, Ephesians 4, Galatians 5. uh, We studied Romans 8. All of these are texts that are going to help us to see That the new man can say, I'm not going to give in to the power of of sin because I'm going to walk in my love and loyalty to Jesus Christ. And so I can have that victory. Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we have that hope. We have that joy. We have that deliverance. And we have that victory. Now for some here today, maybe you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And if that's you, I would plead, come to that place of realization that you are a sinner just like me and just like everybody else you're sitting with, that there's something inside us called our sin nature that separated us from God from the time we were born to the time we were saved. And that separation took place because of our sin. And the Bible tells us that because of our sin, we have fallen short of the glory of God. That's a picture of who Jesus is. We will always fall short of that on our own. That's when grace abound. That's when God said, I'm going to send my son Jesus to fill in that gap. And that gap will be filled at the cross. And my son Jesus will die. He will shed his blood and he will give his life. Jesus was not murdered. Jesus was not taken away. He was given on his own account by all humility. Philippians chapter 2, he became a servant that would suffer for all mankind. And as he died on that cross, he shed his blood. He gave his very life for us. The Bible tells us without the shedding of that blood, there's no remission of our sins. So it could not be some lethal injection. It could not be some bow thrown at him or a spear. It could not be something that would take his life. Surprisingly, it had to be a life that was offered on his own will as a sacrifice, as a substitute for us. There are many of us in here who have experienced that joy. We've experienced that transformation. And the Bible tells us that today could be the day of your salvation. And so if you're sitting here today and you've never taken part of that, I tell you and I plead with you, open your mind, open your heart. God will draw you to himself. He'll show you his word to be true, and he'll grant his grace and love to you even today. And the great news is that it's not too late. And so the question becomes what will you do with Jesus? Peter wrote it this way in his second letter. He said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, or meaning slow. As some men count slackness, but is long suffering. He is patient to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. John 3.16 has got to be like the most famous verse. It's, it's on the cardboard signs at the football games and you'll see it everywhere. John 3.16. But do you know what continues on after when it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life? The text continues, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Like, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man goes unto the Father except through Him. And so you can cash in on all your good works, and you can carry around your backpack of morality, and you can wear the biggest smile with the greatest um, uh, fabricated joy in the whole wide world, but you'll get nowhere when eternity shows up. So the truth that you'll have to face is that what will you do with Jesus? Jesus? Is he going to be your Lord and Savior, or will he just be head knowledge to file in with every other piece of knowledge that you know about the word of God? The last thought here that Isaiah writes about is planned by God to bring God in man form to reign now and forever. You see, we know what the rest of the story is, and I'm thankful for that. We always talk about, like, I'm glad to be on the winning side. And they move, amen. You know, everybody cheers. Like, that's just the word you say in order to get about the crowd riled up. Because everybody wants to be on the winning side. Like, yeah, woo, that's me. And I'm a Cleveland Brown fan, so I'll take something that's good to cheer about, right? (laughs) So when we talk about being on the winning side, we do know how the script will end. We know what the rest of the story is. Now, you realize that we're just one month away from 2020. And a new year is always an exciting thing. And 2020 is like one of those cool years. But you also realize that it's an election year. Everybody go, oh, all right, yeah. So there was an estimated 113 million people who voted in 2018 during the midterm election. That was 30 million more people than cast ballots in 2014 at the midterms. The midterm election was the first in U.S. history to exceed 100 million votes but with only 49% of eligible voters participating. The highest overall participation rate for a midterm election in 50 years was that point, 49%. When many of those around us, and you're gonna see this in the next 12 months, 10 months, 11 months, we're gonna see this. There are many people around us who are putting their hope in politics. Our engagement in this political season, in this political climate should be informed By the truths that are found in Scripture. Now, how can our attitudes and actions reflect the truths of these verses when engaging in politics? Well, let's remember that our hope is not found in Washington, D.C. And the church's stability is not found in the rules and regulations that will come out of the White House. We want somebody else to blame. And we want somebody else to paint the bucket or pour the bucket of paint on and label them as the problems that we all face. But the reality is, is that we've been called as God's church to suffer through persecution. I'm thankful to be in a city that I call like a God city because it's one with a church on every corner. we got a Christian mayor. we got people all in all parts of the city who are talking about God and Jesus you go to the women's uh, options for women, they're ribbon cutting on uh, Flo- uh, South Florida Avenue right next door to the abortion clinic. And there's just hundreds of people gathered, big word of prayer is offered, the cutting of the ribbon. It's a real special event. Everybody celebrates for the, the fight for life and the pursuit of that. And so, yeah, it's great to be a part of that climate. It's good to be a part of that environment. But you also must understand that we're not guaranteed that it'll always be like that. We must understand that the church has not been promised an easy road. There's churches all around this world that are struggling even today, struggling for where they're going to meet, when they will meet, how they will meet, how loud can they worship. Like I sat down there singing Joy to the World, and I was ready to belt it out was singing Living Hope, and I was like, man, this is incredible truth. But we must remember that there are people who have to huddle around to read the scriptures, to sing a song of him together, to give praise to who God is, wondering if at any moment somebody will break into their underground church. And the testimonies are actually given by the participants, the members of the underground church, the persecuted church, and they tell the church in America, don't pray that the persecution ends, because that's where God's blessing really is. We sit in our padded pews and our comfy chairs, and I'm right there with you. Like, I'm thankful for air conditionings and lights and sound system. I'm thankful for technology. I'm thankful to be a part of the American church. But the truth is, is we have to come to grips sometime and realize that we, what we have today may not be here tomorrow. And if it's ever taken away, what will we do? Like, is that the time to throw our hands up and to give up? Is that the time to blame the White House? Is that the time to blame our government? Is that the time to blame the generation behind us who voted in whatever nonsense will be in 10, 15, 20 years from now? No. It's time to stay true to God's word and to be strong and to remember and realize that it's Jesus Christ who rules and reigns now and forever. Like, that's incredible hope. Like, that gives me goosebumps right now speaking of that, because knowing that Jesus rules and reigns right now means that he's in control. And the very fact that he rules and reigns forever means that he will always be in control. Now, verse number nine or verse number six is a a famous one. The worship team sang it in the opener. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called. And we have this list of four things here that give two elements. The wonderful counselor. Jesus is the one fit to guide our lives. Quit going to other sources for your counsel and your guidance. Go to God first. Jesus can help you with your problems, and he may use the presence of his word um, to, to help you, and he may even use fellow believers and their words to help you. Any moment that I have to be in a conversation of counsel or in a meeting of counsel, I'm always praying beforehand, God, my dependency is on you for the words that will be said. Help me to speak words of truth from your word. And so we have him as our great counselor, mighty God the God of all creation, Um, the everlasting father. It pictures the Messiah as a a charitable ruler who demonstrates fatherly concern for his people. The prince of peace, it indicates that the Messiah's kingdom will be characterized by social justice and prosperity. He's the one who makes peace, especially between God and man. verse number seven, we see of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And then he says, even forever. And so the reign of the Messiah will not last merely just a thousand years during the millennial reign after the rapture or after the uh, seven years of tribulation. But we are going to find that there is no end to this reign. And so the reign of the Messiah, he's going to rule for all eternity. I think Handel put it best when he wrote the Hallelujah course. And he said this about the Messiah, he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. 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 There was a recent Discover magazine article called The Science Behind Coincidence. And it suggests that often coincidence is simply our human minds looking for ways to create order out of chaos. Now, we know nothing happens by coincidence, but often when something seems coincidental, it's just our human brain that wants to bring order to some chaos So the author writes in the article, says coincidences are an inevitable consequence of the mind searching for casual structure in reality. Our minds want to see the purpose in everyday occurrences, even if sometimes there is no purpose. However, this article leaves out the most important factor in the Christian life, and that's the hand of God. You see, when we look at the full picture of Christmas... We understand that some events in our life are merely statistically probable events. But when we also look and see that God is at work in our lives, it's always a part of his purpose and plan. When we look at the birth of Jesus Christ, we know the story. Like we're sitting on this side 2,000 years after his birth, we're sitting on this side 2,700 years after the prophecy of Isaiah was written. So we see it all unfolded already. Like we're like, okay, yeah, it all makes sense. I love how it worked together. Boom! I'm excited. But what about your story? Like nobody 2,700 years ago really wrote any script about who you were going to be or where you would be born. Nobody really even planned on that. The the most planning that you had was maybe your parents wrote a birth plan. I remember we wrote wrote a birth plan for. For Bailey, when we were pregnant and the things that we wanted to do when we got to the hospital and how we were going to do it, and we took our birth plan, we handed that over, this is how it's going to be done. But things don't always happen as planned, right? So, I mean, because one of the things I had in fine print was Natalie will not scream her head off, and that just did not happen. I mean, it was like, ah! right? So I think I remember that correctly. Um, I do remember, though, in the middle of labor, she was apologizing to the nurse and doctors for being so loud. And they said, honey, you just scream as much as you want. It's 12.30 in the middle of the night. There's nobody else on this floor. So I was like, ah! Yeah. (sighs) All right, enough memories. Where were we headed? Okay, yes, God's plan. Nobody planned 2,700 years before our birth. Nobody planned any time before what was going to take place. But there is a God who has a perfect plan for each and every one of us. And he knew before time began who you would be, where you would be, and how you would be. And a part of that plan that he designed for you, even as Jeremiah put it, even as you were in your mother's womb, and even as you came out as that beautiful, incredible creation, God's plan began to unfold. So as we see the full picture of Christmas today, we're reminded of God's plan in our own life. It doesn't happen by coincidence just so that our mind can put some kind of order to our chaos. What it is, is that God's handprint is on every part of our life. And whether we're going to submit to it or not is going to be the major ticket. So where are you at today? Some of us are kind of a little frustrated with God. Some of us are doubtful of God. Some of us are insecure, and that insecurity then brings guilt, and then that guilt brings regret, and it's just like this major snowball effect. So what I take from today is this this great assurance that through Jesus Christ coming to be born, he brought a great light in the midst of darkness, and I see that light in my own life. So I want to go from here and be that light to others. But that Jesus who came and God and man formed to dwell among all mankind, to live a sinless life, to be the suffering servant. Also, I see a Jesus or a God who delivered, who give me, gave me deliverance and gave me victory. So I can buy into that. I can chew on that and I can really be propelled forward with that. But then the last thing that I kind of take with me today is this great boost of assurance, this, this great spirit of confidence Because I'm reminded that it is our God who rules and reigns now and forever. So my hope doesn't have to be in anything. My hope isn't even in my marriage. Now, I I build my marriage and I work hard with my marriage and I love my wife dearly. But my hope is not in that. I love my girls and my kids. I love my family. But my hope is not in them. My hope is not in you as a church family. My hope is not in my job as a pastor and shepherd. My hope has to be found in God and God alone. I'm thankful for all of the pieces that, my, that God puts. He puts my wife into my life to strengthen me, sharpen me, and help me. Puts my kids in order to teach me my weaknesses and to stretch me. He puts me in a church family that I can grow together with you. Puts me in a career or a position or a ministry where I can do the thing that I love and pastor and shepherd. So I'm thankful for all of those pieces and you are too for what you have in your life. But that's not where your hope is. Your hope will always be found in Christ for what he has done. And remember, that was all planned by God and nothing will happen without his stamp of approval.